Welcome. You are listening to Conversations from Christchurch Cranbrook. We are a faith community located in Metro Detroit who have been transformed by God's acceptance, love, and grace. Whoever you are, wherever you find yourself on the journey of faith today, we pray this podcast will feed your soul and inspire your spirit. Okay, I think we're going to get started. I want to begin by saying how grateful I am for uh, these uh, wonderful people to be with me tonight. Uh, Thank you for joining us. I know that some of you are still finding your way online and some of you are following us on Facebook as well as YouTube. It's a delight to to have you to this incredible uh, opportunity that we have to to look at how um, uh, Metro Detroit is uh, dealing with the, uh, uh, in the area of social services and utilities, is dealing with the challenges of hunger and thirst and, and um, shelter and support in light of COVID-19. Uh, my name is Bill Danaher and I'm the Rector of Christ Church Cranbrook. We have an incredible panel for you tonight. Uh, each of these um, organizations and each of these leaders have been instrumental in, in helping us and working with us to do the ministry that we're called to do. I am uh, also in, in, in debt and um, have incredible admiration for each of them taking time uh, during this incredibly fluid and challenging time to be with us and to talk about these issues around uh, food uh, security and, and, um, and, and uh, water uh, and uh, shelter and support during the um, the COVID-19 pandemic and how it's changing things for social service organizations uh, in particular in Metro Detroit and what the the future is going to hold for us all. I want to begin by introducing everybody that you have before you today and then we'll go into a a session in which we will um, have people um, uh, present for about five or ten minutes about the challenges that they're facing and then we're gonna turn it to your questions tonight. So if you look, uh, folks, of those of you who are here, you'll see that there's um, opportunities uh, to, to both offer a chat uh, and to offer questions. I can see someone has already asked a question. Um, and what will happen in that is um, uh, they will, there'll be a, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll answer the question by acknowledging it and then we'll work it in. I am uh, delighted to know that Bishop Perry is with us and, and, and watching online and will be one of our uh, participants and, and questioners during this. Um, to tell a little bit about our, our panelists, uh, the Reverend Faith Fowler is the pastor of Cass Community United Methodist Church and executive director of Cass Community Social Service. And that's a nonprofit that provides food, housing, medical and mental health and employment programs for people living in concentrated areas of poverty. And uh, Faith, it is an honor to have you with us. Thank you for taking time. And we are so grateful for the work that you do and so blessed to be able to help and participate in your work. We also have Palencia Mobley, who is the Deputy Director and Chief Engineer of the Detroit Water and Sewage Department. And she is a licensed uh, and professional engineer with 20 years of experience in the industry. But more importantly, uh, Palencia has taken um, particular leadership 
in trying to help the uh, infrastructure of Detroit and particularly the, the, the water um, system begin to uh, make the shift that it needs to, to shift to a more green uh, structure. And we've had the opportunity to work with her on uh, different issues around uh, stormwater drainage. And we are so grateful for her being available to us. And uh, uh, Palencia has, uh, in my mind, uh, probably one of the, the most challenging jobs in the city of Detroit. And so I am so grateful that you're with us, Palencia. And you have, again, my incredible uh, admiration for you and for the work that you do, as well as the expertise with which, we, with which you do it. We also have Ryan Hurst of Lighthouse, which is a, um, Ryan assumed the role of CEO of Lighthouse in January, 2019. And since then, it's just been an easy walk in the park, just managing the social service agency. Uh, so glad that you stepped into leadership. Uh, but uh, as I would say, for such a time as this, you have been called uh, by God to lead this incredible organization that works um, to provide emergency shelter, rental assistance, affordable housing development, supportive service solutions, uh, and crowdfunding technologies to help displace people getting back on their feet and giving them a renewed sense of purpose. So Ryan, we've um, worked with you in several different capacities uh, over the past 30 years at Christchurch Cranbrook. And so we are so grateful that you've taken time to be with us tonight. Um, we also have uh, Kirk Mays, who is um, the CEO of Forgotten Harvest, one of Michigan's top uh, nonprofit organizations. And Forgotten Harvest is probably the nation's premier food rescue organizations and collaborates with more than 800 food donors and more than 250 agency partners to rescue and distribute more than 46 million pounds of nutritious food to Metro Detroit children, families, and seniors each year. And um, I've had the incredible privilege of working with Forgotten Harvest recently. And I know that Bishop uh, Perry is, is excited about a fund that is coming to its conclusion to provide a significant contribution to your work, um, Kirk, and, and to help Forgotten Harvest uh, provide for food insecurity um, uh, in the, in, for, uh, across Southeast Michigan. And so we're so grateful to have you with us and so grateful for the work you do. And finally, we have uh, Kelly Dobner, who is the Chief Advancement Officer for Samaritas, which is the uh, sixth largest nonprofit health and human service organization in the state. It provides adoption, foster care, family preservation services, refugee resettlement services, affordable housing and at-home services, as well as residential communities for seniors <coughs> and persons with disabilities and serves over 20,000 people each year. Uh, Samaritas, which is formerly known as the Lutheran Social Services of Michigan, um, covers the entire state of Michigan. And I am so grateful for you to be with us. If you can, um, uh, I, and I'm, as a board member of Samaritas, I'm incredibly proud of the work that it does and incredibly honored that Kelly is with us. So thank you for being with us as well. Um, so um, I'm gonna try to unmute you, Kelly, cause I think there's a bit of, uh, you might be having some technical issues. We're gonna hope that you can get those resolved and continue to join us. Um, I want to begin with just a moment of prayer and to take a, 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 an opportunity to give thanks, 
not only for the work you all are doing in challenging times, but also to say um, how, um, how, how just to lift up and place in God's hands everybody uh, that you all serve for those who are struggling to find um, to find food, um, water, shelter, and support uh, during this time. So in my tradition, I'm going to say the Lord be with you. You don't have to say anything back. It's just the way I do things. But I know that some of the people that are watching us tonight will say, and also with you, and then I'll, I'll pray, and then we'll say amen. So the Lord be with you. Let us pray. We thank you, dear God, for the wonderful gift of servants that you call to lead. And for these servants who have found their way into places where they can lead at this time and in this place, we thank you for their dedication, for the way that they have dedicated their lives to making sure that the public interest is advanced and people are served and the last and the least are lifted up and supported. We thank you for what they have given up to do this work in their lives as well as what they have given up to be here tonight. We ask that you would bless them richly in all that they do. Bless not only what they give up, but bless what they take on. And we place in your hands, dear God, everybody who has experienced any kind of want or need or necessity as a result of this pandemic. For those who are suffering economic insecurity, and are trying to make ends meet and struggling to keep their head above water. For those who are experiencing um, food insecurity and are afraid and do not know where their next meal is coming from. For those who are trying to find shelter and to stay off the street and in a home during this time and to be safe and sound. For those who need support and care and all that they do. For those who need to be parented and loved and raised and nurtured uh, in this time. We place all of these people in your hands and we ask that you would give us the vision and resources and opportunity and will and heart to care for them in this time. All of these things we ask in your mighty name, amen. So what we have decided to do, for those of you who are watching, we're going to begin uh, with uh, hunger, and then we're going to move broadly to thirst, and then we're going to move to shelter, and we're going to move to support. And that seems like a nice way to get through this, uh, this, this material, but I have to tell you uh, that's, that's merely convenient because many of these organizations approach a lot of those things all at once because they are full service organizations. But for convenience sake, we're going to turn to Kirk and welcome him and ask him to speak for just a few minutes about Forgotten Harvest and the work he's doing and the challenges that he's facing um, as he leads the organization during this time. Uh, good after, good evening to everyone and thank you for uh, allowing us to be a part of this conversation. Um, definitely with an uh, incredible group um, of panelists um, and it's an honor for us to represent uh, well, right now for Forgotten Harvest, you know, our main focus is ensuring that we're getting the proper amount of food out to the community and all of the places um, that we can reach and cover, especially the places where we know people are most vulnerable. Um, and this time, 
Um, it's also a, um, a, a primary focus um, of our attention to keep everyone safe. Uh, so uh, we're trying to focus on uh, creating uh, formats that not only allow us to get the food out to the community um, in an in a effective manner, but also do it in a way that our team and our volunteers and the people that we're serving um, aren't exposed or we at least reduce amount of, as, as much risk as possible um, in getting the work done uh, from getting people exposed to any kind of unnecessary risk to the virus. Uh, since we've begun um, in this format, we've needed to change the way that we actually distribute food into the community um, in a number of ways, uh, taking into account that a large uh, mechanism of our ability uh, to serve the community involves relying on volunteer support, uh, typically coming through our Oak Park location um, to help us with repacking or reorganizing the food that we get from donations in, in so many different directions um, that we then put into um, sizes and uh, uh, that, that makes sense for a fluid crowd of people who are going through any of our partner sites. But also we, it gives us a chance uh, when we're getting bulk donations to separate um, some of the, the, the food that is not fit um, to go out to the community and make sure we preserve as much as possible um, that we can still get out to the community that's usable for people. Uh, we've had to change a bit in this time where uh, not only are we, do we have to kind of roll with the punches of the fluctuating um, availability of food uh, during the onset of the crisis and, and, and the rush that a lot of the grocery partners and a lot of the food system uh, realized. Um, while now that's kind of leveled off and we're still getting the, the the kinds of donations that we're that we're used to, maybe not in the same volumes, but we are getting we still getting donations from fresh uh, food sources and, and perishable food sources, and from our grocery partners uh, and from food manufacturing. Uh, but we're also buying food now uh, in a way that Forgotten Harvest typically doesn't uh, engage in that kind of uh, uh, activity. But we're doing that so we can make sure that we are properly serving the community in a time where we know people are going to have to be locked in, um, that families are going to need more than just supplements uh, for uh, uh, filling up the gaps in, in, the, in the community or in, on, their, on their plates and their kitchen tables. Uh, so that's allowed us, uh, that's, that's uh, made us have to shift not only the way that we've been looking for resources, um, how we're spending um, in order to fill the need. Uh, we're buying things now like personal protection equipment, uh, we're buying food at an unprecedented uh, measure for forgotten harvest type of operation. Um, and we're doing these things with the anticipation that we'll be in this for what we what we see as a long haul. Um, that could be um, through the through and to the to the fall, or maybe and unfortunately even into the beginning of next year. So um, it's been a breakneck uh, set of activities in order for us to get the kind of resources like as far as cash. Um, in order to, 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 to get the food and get the things we need. Uh, we are really grateful to all the community um, that's been able to send us uh, their support. We've gotten a lot of support from corporations, from philanthropy, uh, from our partners at Feeding America, uh, from uh, the state of Michigan. I mean, it's just really been an overwhelming uh, wraparound of support. We did, uh, we were able to apply for the, the, the PPP loan um, and we, we were awarded. So 
Uh, we feel like we're leaning forward on our ability to, to, to be ready for this. Um, our team has been, uh, fortunately, um, so far, we've, we've been uh, relatively safe from, from uh, any exposure to the, well, we've been exposed, I'm sure, but uh, we haven't had any positives or any negative, uh, uh, any positive exposure where we got anybody uh, testing positive for the virus so far. Um, we know that it's a high possibility that it may happen to us, but going this far in, um, knowing that we, we haven't turned into a hotspot anywhere in the food distribution in the, in, in, in the region makes us feel good, um, knowing that we have been working with gleaners, we have been working with other social service partners to create uh, processes and, and um, policies that we can all get in line with um, to make sure that we are doing the same things so that we can keep everybody safe. So, uh, so far the report is um, there's food available. Um, volunteer support is being um, protected with personal protection equipment. And so far we have the volunteers we need for about uh, at least at least about the remainder of this month, but we'll need more support um, and for the beginning of the summer. Uh, and, and, and right now in our 30, 60, 90 day outlook, um, we, we actually feel comfortable with the resources we have in order to continue to buy food and continue to have the volumes and, and meet the need um, that we've been seeing in the community thus far. That's wonderful. And I wanted to, for everybody following at home, I want to let you know that this is the, an example of the personal protection equipment that Forgotten Harvest gives out to its volunteers. Uh, on Monday, uh, uh, April 27th, uh, our church uh, were part of the volunteers that worked there and we, sub we, we provided the funding for the distribution that day at one of the distribution centers in Pontiac. We serviced about uh, 600 cars, uh, which meant um, you know, probably about 1,000 families uh, 5,000 people. And um, right now we're in a time in which we don't have uh, the ability to have Eucharist or have the, the sharing of the body and the, the blood of Christ through bread and wine, which we have been doing uh, usually because of this pandemic. And I have to say that working with Forgotten Harvest on that Monday was the closest I've come to Eucharist in a long time. It was a profound opportunity for me to share that food uh, with others. And it really was a kind of loaves and fishes moment for me, which for me is one of the images that informs my theology of Eucharist. So I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing. It was extraordinarily well organized. Um, and uh, I'm really excited about the support that you're getting from us and also from uh, Bishop Perry through the special fund that has been established uh, for Forgotten Harvest. Um, so thank you for your work. Um, before we go on to any further, we're going to go right to uh, Palencia Mobley and to, for her to give us an update on issues around water uh, in the COVID-19 um, uh, context. Well, thank you, Father Danaher. Um, I'm glad to be here. And um, you know, I thought it was important to really talk to folks and let them know the work that we have been doing um, in response to COVID-19 specifically uh, with respect to restarting water in Detroit households. So there's often a lot of conversation about, you know, there are thousands of households that don't have water in the city of Detroit. And, um, you know, oftentimes some of that information is not always accurate. 
Uh, and so what we found uh, with the Water Restart Program, we had about 9,000 accounts that at the end of December uh, 2019, relative to January of 2020, appeared to be in what would be considered water off status, right? Um, and <clears throat> we actually had one of our vendors go door to door to those 9,000 houses. And what they found was almost 70% of those 9,000 properties that were coded in our system as water off actually were vacant or abandoned. The remaining uh, properties of the 9,000, 15% had water. 12% uh, did not respond um, to the notification. And then about 5% actually enrolled in the water restart plan. And so let me tell you a little bit about the water restart plan. In light of the COVID-19 epidemic, we actually formulated a plan to figure out how to get folks water on. Um, what was gonna be the easiest way to try to get folks water on? And so we came up with this concept of they would pay $25 per month during the entire COVID-19 outbreak. Um, and then as the pandemic subsides, they would be enrolled in one of our assistance programs. And so when we finished the door knocking and went through that entire process, we actually restarted water to 1,160 households in the city of Detroit. And, you know, it ended up being a very arduous process. It wasn't simply that we needed to just turn the water on at the property line, what we call the stop box. It wasn't that simple. The, a lot of the homes did not have adequate plumbing. There were homes that we went in where the best we could do was put in a wash tub, uh, you know, closest uh, in the basement next to the line, the water line that we brought in. Um, there were several properties where we actually had to install water service. And this was a monumental effort that couldn't have been done without the state of Michigan and partnerships with local 98 plumbing contractors. So this effort also shows you what we can do when we can come together um, and we can think outside the box and figure out ways to assist customers. Um, you know, ironically enough, a large number of the properties, as many of you know, Detroit tends to be a rental um, dominated city. 50% um, of properties are occupied by renters. Of course, a significant number of the people who needed to enroll in the water restart plan were uh, rental properties. And so this brings up a different conversation, right, about our onus as responsible business persons. So if I am a landlord, shouldn't I be ensuring that the plumbing is adequate in a property for my um, tenant to have water? Uh, and so this has been an interesting exercise in, you know, understanding humans and human condition and, you know, do we really believe in the concept that I'm my brother's keeper? Or do we really believe in the almighty dollar more than anything? And so I think, you know, there are a lot of misnomers that get out there about the water department, um, but we have tried diligently to ensure access to water for all. So with the RAP program, we've enrolled nearly 9,000 households in that program since it began in 2016. Um, we currently, uh, working with Wayne Metro, have funding uh, via the CARES Act in which people in the RAP program and folks in the 1030-50 plan will receive additional $250 towards their arrearages um, at DWSD. 
there will also be some funding set aside specifically for those who have significant plumbing repairs, those who need service lines brought into their properties, those who need actual plumbing changeouts um, in the property. And so the work we've been doing has been, it has been challenging. I, you know, I will not say it has not been challenging. We really had to shift um, and shift a lot of staff over to try to restore water in multiple properties. We, you know, uh, had situations where people thought they were, you know, sharing something on social media saying we were cutting someone's water off, but we were really there validating that the water was on. Um, so we've had a lot of challenges and oftentimes are, are, are heralded as the bad guy but we really are not the bad guy. We really want to ensure that there's access for water to everyone. July 1st, um, the Great Lakes Water Authority Board back in March um, passed a resolution to increase RAP funding. Um, and so the allocation to Detroit will increase from $3 million to $5 million annually. And um, in addition, we'll be able to expand the program to cover households um, up to 200% of the poverty level. So it increases the income level of those who are um, able to access, access RAP. And so typically um, prior to July 1st, it would be 150% of the poverty, poverty level, which is $36,000 for a family of four. Um, and now we'll be at 200% of the poverty level. And there'll be some other uh, impacts with that. What the RAP program does though, is it pays $25 on the bill every single month and up to $700 per year in arrearages. It also covers $1,000 worth of minor plumbing repairs in a home. And sometimes that may be a simple toilet fix or a toilet change out because, you know, they have those old three to five gallon per flush toilets and maybe you can get them down to a, a gallon per, a gallon point six flush toilet. So anyway, um, needless to say, we do have programs that are there to help people and we're here to help. So. You know, when folks need help, we definitely want them to call us at 313-267-8000. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I want to say, and we're, we do have a question coming in for you, but we'll save that for our, our question and answer time. Um, I want to say that you, again, you have one of the most challenging jobs there is because it's a, it's a controversial topic to say the least. And uh, you've had to stand <laughs> in and provide information that people need to hear so that, that uh, truly a constructive way forward can be found. So thank you so much for the work you do, Palencia. It's a, you know, and I want to add, go ahead. I want to add one other thing. Um, we actually, with the Water Restart Plan, became the model for communities across the country who had interrupted service, who now needed to figure out ways to get the water back on. Um, and so, you know, I'm thankful to have a team of folk that I work with who are committed to finding ingenious ways to try to help folks, um, you know, provide access to service. So thank you. Well, thank you. Um, turning to uh, Ryan Hertz. Um, Ryan, tell us about your challenges at Lighthouse and your opportunities. Happy to, happy to. Hey, thank you so much, Bill, for the invitation to be a part of this group. Um, uh, it's, it's really a, a great panel of, of, of diverse uh, organizations addressing diverse issues with the commonality of uh, some unique unique logistical challenges that I think we're all facing. Um, and thanks to everybody who's taken the time in the evening to tune in on an issue that uh, may seem far away for folks who are staying at home right now. Uh, and um, 
it's uh, it's been really moving to me over the the last couple months. Actually, it's been less than than two months um, to to see how much the community's taken interest in the people that folks like our organization and the others on this panel are working to serve. Um, you know, during a time where we all have a lot of, uh, of course, anxieties and fears associated with taking care of our own families and everything else that's, that's going on. So uh, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, when Bill introduced me, he mentioned I, I came to Lighthouse uh, in January of 2019, uh, which is true. Um, but uh, Lighthouse uh, is actually the, uh, the result of a merger of an organization called Lighthouse of Oakland County and an organization called South Oakland Shelter. Uh, I've been the executive director for South Oakland Shelter since 2010. Um, so folks at, at Christ Church Cranbrook have been a part of that program uh, since well before that time and, and, and may know me from that role. Um, and we're still operating the SOS program as a, as a part of this combined organization. But as a result of this merger that happened last year, which we could not have foreseen how the benefits of, of what we did last year and the challenges of, of bringing two organizations together uh, would position us uh, to respond to certain situations today. We, I wouldn't have foreseen it in February or the beginning of March, um, but uh, which by the way, feels like 15 years ago. I don't know if anyone else is having that experience. Yeah. Um, but but um, I, um, you know, when we brought the organizations together, our goal was to take an organization, South Oakland Shelter, that really initially specialized in emergency shelter for people and built out a suite of services focused on uh, moving people out of shelter into housing, supporting them in housing, providing wraparound services and connecting with other organizations to make sure that folks stay housed. Um, and then over time, um, evolved to looking at the systemic issue of affordable housing and how that impacts uh, homelessness um, and other challenges uh, for, for folks, uh, low to mid-income folks in our, in our community um, and started working on the development of affordable housing. And our goal was to bring that organization together with Lighthouse, which started as an emergency food charity in, in, in the 70s, um, to bring them together uh, to, to form a holistic uh, response to, to poverty. Um, and, and so Lighthouse, which similarly had developed from its emergency food pantry into a general emergency services organization, and then a transitional housing organization, and then a community development organization, had a similar uh, evolution to South Oakland Shelter for similar reasons. Really, uh, both organizations, the best way I could describe it, is we're not specialists, we're generalists, right? So we're looking at poverty, we're looking at uh, the, the, the broad issues of which the specialist organizations in our community uh, are, 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 are kind of plugging in and, and, and meeting a lot of pieces of those needs. And in some cases, we're providing those services directly. And in some cases, we're, we're coordinating them with partners. And sometimes it's a collaboration of the two. And in this current moment, uh, that's made this a very complicated situation for our organization. Um, on day one, uh, one of our biggest concerns was we don't want to have to put anybody out of our shelter program. And uh, we knew it was going to be difficult to make sure that, that could happen uh, while also meeting our number one goal, uh, which was the safety of our clients, the safety of our volunteers and the safety of our staff. Um, and we were not willing to sacrifice that. Um, so after 35 years of continual rotation 
of the south of the shelter, moving from church to church to church to the occasional synagogue back to a church, maybe another synagogue here or there. After 35 years of weekly rotation, uh, uh, Greenfield Presbyterian was uh, the last yeah. uh, the last week, and we didn't even finish the week um, where we for the first time uh, we had to to pause the rotation as a result of this pandemic. And our first reaction uh, was to look at what resources we had um, to try to remove the equation of the complexity of moving to different volunteer groups. You have a couple hundred people every week coming in and out of different congregations, cooking meals and providing transportation, everything else. Probably, the, I, I have to say SOS is probably the, the worst possible design for a pandemic of any social, pro, social service program you can imagine. And, 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 and there was just uh, no way we could continue that way. And so immediately we looked to what are our current resources? Well, as a result of the merger with Lighthouse of Oakland County, we now had access to the Pontiac campus of Lighthouse. And so, uh, and thanks to our, our, our remote uh, work policies for the majority of our administrative staff uh, day to day, we were able to open up space in our administrative offices and immediately provide emergency shelter at our offices. We had a community room uh, turned into a shelter for, for single men. And then we used a common space in our PATH transitional housing building for women that was off limits because we didn't want people congregating. Uh, we turned that into uh, a temporary emergency shelter for, for, for single women and women with children. And we did that for a couple of weeks. And during that period of time, um, we were working on, on building up the resources to be able to start focusing on non-congregate shelter. Um, because what happens when we continue to do congregate shelter is uh, every time you take in an intake, there's risk. Every time somebody uh, comes into the population, there's risk of exposure to the whole population of this unfortunate illness. So uh, it was a logistical challenge for us. We didn't want to be turning people away from shelter. And we also didn't want to be um, putting people in, into a difficult spot. We also had some folks in our shelter who were essential workers. Um, so some who had jobs prior to the stay-at-home order who had to go to work. And then after the stay-at-home order who had to continue to go to work. And we weren't comfortable with them coming and going either into that population. Uh, and so the first thing we did is we started taking the essential workers um and families and putting them into hotel rooms uh, and we we focus on motels ideally so that their doors open straight to the outdoors and, and for a variety of reasons and um over time we went completely non-congregate so uh all of the folks who typically were rotating after uh, a couple of weeks at our at our offices uh and, and at our transitional housing building are now all in, in, in hotel rooms. Uh, we partnered with the county to provide uh, prepared meals through actually some business stimulus funding that they creatively worked with the shelters uh, to direct to contract restaurants to cater uh, prepared meals to our shelter, our shelter clients. Um, so we were providing three meals a day and then, uh, and then video conference or telephone supportive services. Um, as a result of moving into the non-congregate setting um, and our efforts to raise funds to be able to do so, uh, we now have doubled the capacity of our typical rotation. Um, and we are quickly moving to about triple. And we think it'll go beyond that during this period of time. Uh, I would say our biggest challenge today is thinking about what does the exit strategy look like from that. Um, providing hotel rooms and three meals a day to folks uh, this way 
uh, is dramatically more expensive than our rotating emergency shelter program. Um, but thankfully, we've had a lot of support from the community. Um, and that gets me to, you know, on, on the first day of the first case in Michigan, uh, one of our staff members said, let's use HandUp. We, we have a crowdfunding uh, uh, platform that we use uh, for individual needs of our clients. Things like bus tickets and services and other, other uh, resources that, that, that folks in our program might need. We started a campaign for the emergency uh, needs of, 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 uh, of folks uh, as a result of this pandemic. And we had a goal of $25,000 to raise some money for hotel rooms um, and also to partner with Oakland schools on, on a food partnership uh, targeting um, families who had children on the homeless students list that Oakland schools uh, has. Um, which is about 2,400 households or so with, with homeless students in the, in, the, in the school districts in Oakland County. And that sort of blossomed and, 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 and organizations started reaching out to us to partner. And um, we're now at a place uh, where uh, last week we, we crossed the million dollar mark on that campaign. Um, we've been able to double our shelter capacity. Um, we've partnered with Oakland University on a food distribution initiative. Uh, which is sourced with food, um, both from, from gleaners and Forgotten Harvest, uh, as well as other sources. Um, and there's, uh, at this point, about 70 organizations that are a part of that partnership. I thought it was 40, but I was corrected earlier today. Uh, we're now at about 70 organizations that are part of that food distribution partnership. Um, and that's something that we wouldn't have typically taken on. It was something that uh, we just sort of stepped into as a result of, of, of need. And um, we are now looking at, well, we have the resources to respond. I think similar to what Kirk was saying, well, we have the resources to respond to the need that's in front of us today. We don't really know how dramatically that will continue to increase over time and how it will evolve. Um, we know that there's a moratorium on evictions, for example. And we know that at a certain point, uh, folks are gonna have a lot of rental arrears and a lot of people haven't been working. And that's why the, we've seen all this additional need around, around the food side. And that's all gonna suddenly shift back over to the housing side when, when it's time to pay rents. So we don't know how to uh, anticipate exactly what the scale and scope of those needs are, are going to be. And um, so we're you know, still sort of pedal to the metal on, on, on fundraising to make sure that uh, us and our partner organizations are equipped to meet as much of that need as we can, um, both the needs that continue to emerge today um, and, and so that we're prepared that we don't see a big flood of evictions uh, later in the year or early next year. Um, so as a part of that, we actually have a, an event this Saturday night. Uh, so for those of you who missed fundraising events uh, <laughs> during this don't period of time. Don't, don't we all, Ryan? Of we course. All, yes. yes. Uh, yeah, we actually have a telethon live stream. It's about 50 to 60 Detroit, mostly musicians, some comedians and other artists, uh, all with Metro Detroit connections. Some don't live here anymore. Um, Alice Cooper, Lily Tomlin, Susie Quattro. I'm trying to think of some of the others. Um, for folks who know Detroit music, The Go will be uh, one of them. Uh, there, there's, there's, a, there's a ton. Um, and... Uh, that'll be live streaming from our Facebook and YouTube uh, Saturday from 2 p.m. to 2 a.m. Um, and I think Meredith might have the link to share uh, for folks who, who might want to tune in and enjoy that. Um, and uh, 
that's my story. Thank you so much. And it's amazing to see how you've had to do the same kind of reinvention that Kirk had to do. And um, I would like to say that, you know, uh, working with uh, SOS for the 30 years that we have as Christchurch Cranbrook has been one of the more incredible blessings to us. And anytime we do an outreach ministry, it's first and foremost a, a blessing to us before it's a blessing to anybody else. And so I'm really grateful for that. And um, I'm also grateful that uh, we were able to, to start working on some of the solutions that you're having to do through a targeted grant that we sent to you for $50,000 on behalf of a, of a family foundation that we work with. And so it's almost as if we were starting to get in the direction of moving where you're having to move these days. So I am really grateful for the work you do. Let's turn to Faith. And um, uh, Faith, can you give us a picture that Ryan raised the issue of volunteers and the issues of resources, but maybe you can focus it a little bit on that. Sure, thank you. And what an honor to be with this group and these fine organizations. I uh, respect and uh, hold you all in high esteem. Um, I'd like to begin by saying that every executive order hit us uh, in a way we didn't anticipate. Um, uh, right at the get-go when the number of people could gather, and by the way, I'm in support of them, so don't take it the wrong way. Uh, and by the way, I'd love to have Alice Cooper do something for us, so Ryan, if you put that... Right, right. <laughs> um, you, you got it, Faith. Th thank you, my I'm, friend. I'm, I'm on it. Okay. Um, so we do four things, food, housing, healthcare, and jobs. Uh, right away when the amount of people who could gather was limited, we lost our activity center for developmentally disabled adults, which is 120 people five days a week, which was horrible for them because we didn't have any advance notice and horrible we laid off 20 staff members and horrible because what it did to our budget, right? And then came the uh, schools shutting down. Again, I agreed with the decision, but it meant all of a sudden we had 50 kids, homeless kids with no internet connection, no computer, no school lunches initially. Eventually we got school lunches that were frozen. Good luck cooking them if you're homeless. Um, but so there, and then the buses went down and half of our staff take the bus. So every single time, even though the decisions were right and well and reasoned, uh, it was like a tsunami at our door. Uh, in addition to losing the activity center, we lost our green industries, which is jobs for people who have significant barriers to work. Um, uh, people who have been homeless, people who are mentally ill, people who have been incarcerated. Many of them are physically ill as well, and so we simply couldn't keep the doors open. If you have AIDS, you don't want to be in a place where you might you know, get the virus. If you have diabetes, all of them have, in one way or another, compromised health, and so that meant they lost their jobs too, which gave us a whole new focus for some of our food. We, we do food all the time. We do 700,000 meals a year. Uh, some of it comes, by the way, from Forgotten Harvest, so thank you very much, Kurt. Uh, but uh, as we were laying off our own staff, we began asking questions about what if you're quarantined at home, and what if you lost your job, how are you going to eat? And so we began doing groceries to your door, no contact, no questions. You tell us you need it, we're going to bring it, and that has done uh, incredible things to um, to stretch us in, in terms of who's who's hungry and who um can use that help but in, in terms of our homeless which is really what you asked about bill we we run three kinds of programs one is permanent supportive housing for people who 
as, as Ryan mentioned, are, are ready to be relatively independent and need wraparound services, but can stay indefinitely permanent, right? And then the tiny homes that many people know it's a home ownership program for poor people, including folks who have been homeless. And then our emergency services. So uh, our rotating shelter, which is modeled after the Oakland County one, by the way, and uh, predates me at CAS, and I've been there 26 years, um, uh, a warming center and um, a family shelter. All toll on a given night, we house 300 homeless men, women, and kids, unless, you know, uh, uh, unless it's the polar vortex and, or unless <laughs> it's the blackout or, and then we just, uh, I always say, arrest me. Uh, I, I don't care if the fire marshal comes, don't tell anybody in the city, okay? Uh, but, but, but basically we take anyone, anytime, and we, we deal with the logistics later. Um, so for the winter, this winter, when we were supposed to have 50 in our warming center at night, we had a hundred many nights because it was, it was there or nowhere, right? Um, we also run an outreach team. It's their job to go out and try and talk to people who are living, uh, you know, under bridges, in abandoned houses, uh, in doorways, to try and convince them to come in. And they've had great uh, success, by the way. I'll brag on them for a minute. Um, almost every night they talk somebody into coming in. At this point, they're coming into one or two of the special shelters to be tested. Um, early on, uh, they brought in some people who tested positive. So we went into quarantine mode for 14 days, uh, but they're back up and running and uh, helping. Early on, I was very worried about the um, personal protection equipment because we couldn't get it. We just couldn't get it. And consequently, um, our people got sick. Uh, in, in our shelters, uh, I echo um, Ryan, our shelters are congregate in nature, which is why we can take in extra people. It's not set up as extra as bedrooms. Um, so it means you sleep in a room with 50 other people. You eat in a room, please, I'm on the, I'm on the Zoom, okay? You eat in a room with 100 other people. You go to the bathroom with 50 other people. So good luck social distancing. So right away, we had to shut down our buildings, our residential buildings. So it was only staff and people who lived inside, which in terms of the volunteers, we went from 7,000 a year to none. Mm. So it shut down the rotating shelter, it shut down the food service, it shut down the tiny homeless volunteers, it shut down the landscapers, the builders, the painters, the movers. I mean, we rely on volunteers to do everything. So now we're down staff and now we're down volunteers. And by the way, as staff get sick and they do, um, and are, are off to 14 days of quarantine, then you've got people working extra shifts and they're tired and they're worried about taking it home. So today we've had one resident die. We've had three residents test positive, four more that have the symptoms that haven't been tested three staff members who've been uh, quarantined at home. We've had, you know, if you want to talk about what gets me out of bed in the morning, it's, it's my staff. Um, I got somebody on staff whose mother died. He stayed at work and he came back to work the next day and he came back to work the next day. And I know he couldn't go to a funeral or any of that stuff, but when my mother died, uh -uh. We had a program manager, her sister died. She took the phone call in her office. She stayed in her office. She came back the next day. She came back the next day. 
it's all the virus. So all around us, people, I have two people on my board who got it. I had somebody on my board who was laid off. So every which way but loose you turn and there are people scared and hurting. And um, so within just my staff, I got people I laid off and people I'm working in dangerous situations and people who are working from home. And uh, I don't know, I, there's never been anything like this. I've been here, you know, Ryan, I think we count this in dog years. I've been here since Jesus was lost in the temple, it seems like. But nothing like this. Nothing has been like this. And I'm, and I'm glad the numbers are coming the right way. I know what we're experiencing isn't unique, but it, it's overwhelming. Mm. Uh, fundraiser for every nonprofit has been canceled. You know, congrats to you, Ryan. My hat is off you. I hope you make gazillion dollars because you do good work and you need it. But every nonprofit right now, we were lucky enough, our biggest fundraiser was canceled at the end of March. And Kim Cares came through as a local foundation, came through and gave us the matching money anyway. And we were able to raise a significant sum. And we were able to get the PPP. But my, my finance people tell us by the end of this fiscal year, we'll be behind a million dollars. <laughs> you know? Now, where, where am I uplifted? Every time somebody sends me a face mask of me, every time somebody sends me their stimulus check, we didn't ask for it, they just do it. Every time somebody calls and says, what do you need? Every time you know somebody shares a story, they don't have to do that. Half of them are unemployed themselves. Half of them have sick relatives themselves. This isn't just hitting one community. It's hitting the whole damn country, the whole world. And so when people step out and they do both heroic things and generous things, you should just stop and thank God because mm. they don't have to, but they have been. And I bet you they, they will continue doing so. And it makes all the difference on days that you're tired where you wonder if the volunteers are ever gonna come back, if the funding is ever gonna come back. What are we gonna do with all those extra people in the long run? All those developmentally disabled people sitting at home wondering if they're ever coming back. I don't know. It, uh, for such a time as this, you said it. Mm. You know, I'm done. Faith, you are amazing. And I, I want to say that <laughs> one of the things that we were inspired to do in part by, um, you know, the Bishop's Fund for Forgotten Harvest that we contributed to is we have our own... Um, our own uh, uh, fund for COVID-19 response. And we've been able to raise about $150,000 and to put it out to different organizations to help um, lift up the healthcare workers and to minister to those who, who need our help and to work with our community partners. And uh, you and Ryan uh, were this past week's uh, focus to provide you with the resources you need to house um, we were guessing around 168 um, uh, people in your in your different shelters. So I, it's been an honor to walk with you. I hope that we will continue to support you, and uh, I am so grateful for the work that you do, and so blessed by what you do. And and thank you for sharing so in in, in the way that you do, uh, and thank you for caring for your staff the way that you do, and thank you for caring for your people. Um, let's turn to Kelly Dobner 
And uh, Kelly, you are uh, in charge of a, uh, all of you have different kind of uh, organizations and Kelly's is probably, I think, uh, the largest one and the most and, and one of the more complex ones. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, my I echo the same sentiments as everybody's expressed here. It's a true honor to be amongst all of you on this panel and sharing similar stories and, and resources and best practices. Um, you know, this is much to what you were saying, Faith. This is something I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. But, you know, through it all, I have seen people do some really amazing things. Um, that is what motivates me every day. It's, it's in the unexpected places uh, that get me the most um, from people that are, are suffering much worse than, than, than I am in that moment and, and much more. And it's just been as a people, to see a people serve as a, as a people has, has just been inspiring. And you, know, you talk about how complex Samaritas is, um, and it's a very complex organization. We serve up to you know, 20,000 people across the state every year where we're in a variety of different services, you know, from food delivery to homeless shelters, to senior care, to foster care adoption, family preservation, behavioral health, substance use disorders and refugee services. And, and while we're big, um, you know, the harder you fall sometimes. And, and we've certainly experienced that through this, through this crisis and, and will continue to, because one of the things, you know, I'm, I'm focusing here tonight on this panel is talking about shelter and support. And that is truly what Samaritas has always been about. It's about creating homes for people. That looks very different depending on who you are and your background and where you're going. And, and it's been a privilege and honor to serve Samaritas for the three years that I've been there so far um, in meeting those challenges. And I'll tell you, uh, COVID has presented some significant challenges in being able to accomplish those, those dreams for folks um, and, and, and certainly, certainly the goals that they had. Um, immediately, you know, with the, the contact list um, services or the all of our services are so reliant on that face-to-face -face contact. And so when that went away, um, it provided some unique challenges. But one of the things that we, that we remind ourselves constantly is that COVID's here, but it doesn't stop our work. Our work, it can't stop. Um, and so while it, it looks a little bit differently than it normally does, it does continue. Um, and so you know, I'll talk about a couple of a couple of key areas that fall into that shelter and and, and support service area. Um, you know, we offer behavioral health services, and we're we're conducting um, dozens of trauma assessments every week, and we couldn't do that anymore. And so these kids that are coming into care um, and so desperately need those services are falling to the wayside. So we're working on a pilot right now and um, trying to gather data and inform policy. Um, so we can have some of those services be covered um, and they're therefore allowed to be uh, delivered tele using telehealth. Um, it's so important, it can be done, it's being done, but it's not being done wide enough. And if we can find the resources to help us with, you know, the tablets that we need and the software that we need and be able to collect that data and show the state and show the, the insurance providers um, that this is something that, that can't can't wait because COVID's here. That's something that we're we're very excited and committed to. 
um, our shelter, we're one of the only shelters, right, that keeps families together right now. And we have 45 kids with living in our shelter uh, with their parents. And we've got about 170 some kids or people living in our shelter right now. Um, and they have to shelter in place. And so much like Faith and Ryan, some of the things you were talking about, they're small things or they seem like small things in this monumental pandemic that we're in. But can you imagine living in a, in a 10 by 10 room um, with a family of four up to 10 people at a time with no, no television, no, no other resources for some kind of just release, uh, a release from what's happening in your world. And so you know, we've been able to work with the community to bring TVs um, and hotspots because we're in a very old building with Cinderblock that doesn't have a lot of uh, receptive, um, uh, they can't receive the, the signal. Um, and we've been able to get Chromebooks so kids can continue their education because that's something significant with that many kids living in that care. And you know that's something that's really important too and something I'm just so grateful for this community. And I talked about coming together as a people, uh, people like all of you and the great folks of Christ Church Cranbrook and certainly our wonderful foundation and corporate partners and individuals that come together in collaboration because if that wasn't important before COVID, I, 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 it's certainly important now. And that's how we've been able to get done some of the things that we've been able to get done. I don't know how we do it otherwise. Um, you know, some of the other things that we that we offer that have been hit the hardest is our affordable living communities. We have 15 across the state that serve people with disabilities, largely seniors and families as well. And those communities, while they're in an apartment type setting, um, they don't have transportation. They're the communities that are losing their jobs. Um, they can't get out and get their own food. So setting up emergency food pantries that we can keep going after this crisis. So they're not having to leave their communities to get the basic needs that they that they need to, to survive. Um, that, that's been imperative. Uh, senior living is a huge part of what we offer in, in, in services. And I call it, you know, the, the second front line. You know, our hospital systems are incredibly critical to this and play a significant, significant role. Um, but what I'm excited about is the rhetoric changing around skilled nursing facilities and rehab centers, recognizing that so many cases are in those centers as well. And while they received a lot of negative press at the beginning of this, like I said, I'm excited to see that we're starting to recognize that we need PPE just as much as the hospitals. We need that support. Um, you know, much like Faith, you were talking about not being able to get PPE. I mean, it was unbelievable what we had to do to get what we got when we got it. And we're not, we're not close to what we still need, you know, to this day. Um, we've had some generous donations around it. And thank God that we did. I pray, pray every day for that continued help because it's imperative because it's, it's a bit of a congregation, uh, a congregate setting, right? And so it's so easily spread. Father uh, Bill, we were talking about that earlier, um, how fast that can spread through there. And so those, those infectious controls are so imperative and PPE plays a huge, huge role in that. Um, and our staff has been just unbelievable. We've had the least amount of call-offs, uh, more doubles and work back to back than you can ever imagine because they're so committed to the people in our care. And we have a thousand frontline staff workers across the organization. I've never seen anything like it. And it's a complete honor to, uh, to work with each and every one of them. And I'll tell you, because our organization is so big, we don't qualify 
for any of the CARES Act funding at, at all. So, yeah. um, you know, we're working to advocate for that. Um, like I said, just because we're big doesn't mean that 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 that, that matters. We, we just fall that much harder. And so that's important to change that conversation with our Congress as well to support that. And the last big area is our foster care kids. Um, you know, they've already experienced so much trauma being separated from their parents. And now they're living in a foster situation where visits with their birth parents are not possible. And so being able to work with our community partners to provide a couple hundred iPads to the birth parents, to the kids, and certainly to our caseworkers, so they don't experience that secondary um, trauma of abandonment of where's my mom and dad during this because we can't connect in the same way and having to just get very creative um, to still offer home visits and orientations and licensing foster parents because right now while kids are sheltering in home in their home they we know that that's not the safest place for people to be for kids to be and without having those reporters of teachers and coaches and neighbors to, to identify potential abuse and neglect where CPS gets involved and, and kids can enter into our care, that's a big problem. And so on the other side of COVID, I, I keep saying the other side of COVID, I'm not quite sure what that means, but um, when we're through with this most imminent danger of it um, and the state starts opening up, we are preparing for a surge um, of kids entering into care. And so we need foster parents now more than ever to prepare for that. And like I said, we've we've converted everything to online and virtual training so we can continue that. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a significant problem. And the organization is looking at a multi-million dollar loss at the end of this due to lost revenue for services and COVID related expenses. It's, um, it's huge challenges ahead for everyone, certainly. Thank you so much. And Kelly, thank, I really appreciate the, the window that you've opened into that. And, um, you know, I, I'm incredibly proud to be um, to be on the board of Samaritas and have you summarize those things. And, and yes, just to underscore for people that um, even though Shake Shack uh, could get a um, SBA uh, loan, um, actually Samaritas did not qualify. And um, I just find that um, um, unbelievable. Uh, so, uh, so thank you so much for the work you're doing day in and day out. We're going to go to questions now and we're just going to, I think the only way to do this is as they've come in. And so, and actually one came in while Palencia was presenting and it's, uh, it's a question that, uh, that I'm just going to state exactly as it came to me. Um, so I can understand, which is how many homes that were inhabited originally had no water service. I think that's a question for clarification. So what I can say is of the 9,000 homes that we visited, um, 70 approximately 70% of those properties were vacant or abandoned. Approximately 15% of that 9,000 was inhabited and they had water service. Another 12% did not uh, respond to the inquiry where we left door knockers and door tags. Um, and 5% of that 9,000 appeared to be occupied homes that did not have a water service. Uh, and so there were 5% would be about 450, give or take. Um, so about 450, 460 properties um, did not uh, have water service. Yeah, and of course, just to say to you, I mean, um, I think this part of the question was, 
you know, did people abandon the uh, the the uh, houses when the water was shut off or something like that? And there's just no way you could know that from your vantage point. Yeah, there's no way for us to know that. I mean, the bottom line is Detroit is is an extremely transient city. You cannot track uh, people from property to property to property. Uh, and so in a lot of cases, um, and then obviously the demolition program moves exceptionally fast um, in terms of the number of houses that are actually taken down on an annual basis. So data changes constantly and needs to constantly be refreshed. But Detroit is extremely transient. Um, and that's due to, you know, people constantly needing support services. You know, it's bigger than the water department. I tell people that all the time. This is about poverty. And until we begin to wrap our arms around what poverty means and providing access um, and, and actually creating equity, um, then, it, it, you know, it's, it's always going to be bigger than water. It's, it's not as simple as just uh, turning someone's water on. Thank you so much. I really appreciate what you just said there, because that's actually opening it up to the, 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 the complexity of the problem. And uh, I think so often people um, take refuge in a very simplistic analysis uh, that is provided and don't realize the amount of investment that actually needs to occur and the kind of slow, careful work that needs to be done to actually make things um, different for people. Um, I wanna go to the next question which is, um, I, and I, I don't think we can hear, I, I, I'll ask you all to kind of do your own internal barometer as to when to, to how to answer this. And if you can't answer it quickly, um, what do you anticipate the challenges your clients will face once the shelter at home is lifted? Um, if you could just name that in a, with a, with a, with a sentence, um, what would those be? Uh, Rent and, and rent arrears would probably be one of the biggest ones I'm most worried about, uh, whether they're our current clients or very likely our future clients. Uh, I think that's a big one. I think a lot of trauma as well as a result of all of this and mental health challenges. Yeah. How about how about you, Kirk and Faith and Kelly? Jobs. I mean, they had trouble getting jobs before this happened. Now the small businesses are are uh, struggling to survive and many of them won't and so opportunities for our people to work even if they want to work or are ready to work um are, are, will become fewer and far between yeah you know i just um i hope that the governor can keep us safe for as long as possible um because um you know when you say when the shelter in place is lifted um is almost like a, you can read into that uh when the COVID 19 price crisis is over and that is not the same thing right so um i think the biggest concern is going to be um we may be opening up things before we should be and people are going to be out there in a landmine of um possibilities of getting themselves exposed and if there's not as much consideration as it is even now to keeping people safe and you know keeping businesses and keeping people off the streets, then it gets to a point where things get even more out of hand than right now. And then people start to worry, you know, start to figure out who they can trust. You know, can they trust these places that open? Can they trust what's coming from the news? Can they even trust us? 
if we relax any at all while people are, are still getting sick and people are still um, losing their lives. You know, I think the psychological impact of who, of, of when this thing is going to be over is going to be something that's going to be pervasive into this, the, the culture of our communities uh, well before uh, we can actually say this over. And, and Kelly, uh, you were mentioning uh, issues around foster care. Um, right, right. I, for, for us, I think that's going to be one of our biggest impacts. You know, um, right now we're, we're the largest private foster care adoption organization and adoption organization in the state serving a thousand kids a day. And even in those pre-COVID situations, we could only take 35% of the kids that were sent to us as the largest provider. Um, and so the need for more foster parents is going to be tremendous because safe homes for these kids that are going to enter care is going to be overwhelming. Wow, thank you. Um, the next question is for uh, directly to Forgotten Harvest, and it's from Bishop Perry. And it's uh, approximately how many days of food might a family of four receive from a visit to Forgotten Harvest? And which does, how much does it cost for these bags of food? And approximately how much does it cost to fund an average day in Detroit or maybe southeast, southeastern Michigan for right. entire catchment? Those are big questions, right? Uh, we we don't actually have those hard hard detailed numbers worked out, but if you can actually see the picture um, that's behind me right now, yeah. And what you'll notice is a line of 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 different items that people are getting when they come through our lines, right? And um, some anybody could come through, and there's two numbers that are being put on cards. One number represents the number of families that you're there to pick up for. And the second number represents the number of children that you have in your household. So when you come through at the beginning of the line, what you're getting is a mixed box of things. It's the um, cereal, shelf stable, yeah. shelf stable, um, shelf -stable um, canned goods, semi-perishable items. And it's a mix of things uh, when we've gotten uh, meals from places like Panera or even meals ready to eat um, from, the, from the government, we've been able to mix those into those boxes. And I say that those boxes have a varying price on them um, because there's so many different things and they're sourced from so many different so, um, places. You know, the boxes are going probably anywhere from 15 and 25 to 30 dollars, depending on what kind of items we actually get into the box. But once you get a box, uh, from a forgotten harvest distribution, that's just the beginning of it. From there, we're giving people full accoutrements of uh, groceries. So uh, if you see the oranges that are there, you're not just getting a handful of oranges, you're getting a bag of oranges, a whole five pound bag of potatoes, you get a, a whole bunch of uh, cucumbers here. The next thing would be uh, ready-made milk, I mean, uh, not milk, uh, eggs. So you'd be, get, you'd be getting uh, probably about oh, two weeks worth of eggs. Um, and then from there, we would have proteins, two proteins. So the proteins are looking, I mean, de depending on when and where you've come, um, anything from a range of bags of uh, pre-cut uh, fajita meat, uh, chicken fajita meat, um, whole chickens, uh, pork loins, hams. And we're giving families, each family, two of those proteins so they'd be able to make meals with those. And then as you get further down the line, you still got the summer lunches for the kids, which again, in each of those bags, 
there's enough for five lunches for each child that you designated in the, in the car, um, as well as a number of other items like the drinks, um, breads, cakes, and the things like that that people might, might need. And as we've been able to get our hands on supplies, we've also been able to, able to give away baby food and formula as well. So in truth, um, when people go through a forgotten harvest line, it's looking more like about 100 to 200 pounds of groceries. So it, it kind of depends on how far you can take a bag of onions and that kind of stuff and potatoes for a family of four. I can tell you that we're giving enough food for a family that you're not having to worry about food for the next few days for sure. Um, and if you say you're coming for three or four or five people, as long as you got the, or families or households, as long as you got the room in the car, we're filling you up so everybody gets what they need. Thank you so much. That's a great answer. And that, that accords with my experience of the organization. As, the far, as far as numbers, Father, if I could just delve into that, sure. we, as I said, we don't have it. We don't have it worked out to the final number, but to just to be for transparency and to give everybody an idea. Forgotten Harvest, uh, typically in our normal operation, it takes about eight and a half to nine million dollars for us to do what we do. All, of it. all right. So that means that on a on a regular basis, we're about a seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar a month organization. Uh, since this whole thing has started, we've noticed that. Uh, we've had to spend about an additional 750000 a lot of that money going towards purchasing food. So right now we're at a, what we would call a burn rate of about $1.5 million uh, per month. That's an additional 750000 over what we currently uh, would, would be spending. But a lot of that is, would be attributed in, in, Mar in March and April to a lot of things we had to do to actually ramp up to where we are. We anticipate as we go forward that our burn rate is going to be somewhere total about $1.2 million uh, per month. So if you break that down at a 30 day and all that kind of stuff, and I would give you an average number because we're trying to universalize how we're dealing with the community. We're talking about somewhere around 35 to $4,000, maybe about $5,000 per site in order to serve 700 plus families um, in our community. And all that food is given away for free. Thank you so much. That is amazing work. And um, to keep going to the questions, um, I would like to direct this to um, particularly uh, Faith and Ryan. Um, uh, the question that is raised is, is a lot of people who come in for assistance, are, are the, the, the person is surmising that they have uh, low morale and are at, or at a low point in their lives. And um, is there any are there any programs uh, by way of assistance with spiritual development, getting them involved in community, building integrity, and giving them voice? And um, what I can say from my experience with SOS, one of the things that I think we did do well through the emergency shelter program is the different congregations that would have the kind of deep involvement in the lives of the guests who are with us often did do classes on meditation and prayer, um, provided incredible spiritual support. Um, and what, 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 and I don't know much about uh, the, the kinds of support in the housing that's provided at, at um, CAS Faith. So could you both speak about a little bit about that? Uh, well, one thing I want to share um, is well, that's all true about our rotating shelter program. Um, and 
our other housing, pro we, we have housing programs that are scattered site where people are, are really only interacting uh, with a supportive services person. Um, we have some that are more congregate, like our transit, well, I wouldn't call it congregate, but we have apartment buildings for transitional housing where there's more of a sense of community. There's kind of a spectrum depending on the person's situation. And there's a lot of client choice in terms of where they choose to be. Um, but in regards to the emergency shelter, people coming to us right now uh, in this current situation, uh, I've been blown away uh, with the spirits and morale of the people that are homeless people that we're providing emergency shelter to. Um, right at the beginning of this situation, we had two staff uh, positive cases the same week as the first positive case in Michigan. Um, and we ended up, because it was so early, uh, and it wasn't entirely clear how socially distanced folks were during the early part when they were non-symptomatic. We ended up having to quarantine 22 staff members as a result of contact with those two staff members over the period of time where they may have been contagious. Um, thankfully, none of them uh, became sick. So apparently our, our social distancing and hygiene practices and everything are, have been effective. Um, but during that period of time, the staff, had a lot of fear, um, a lot of uh, grave concern. Um, we, we moved the whole shelter into the office environment. It's a completely different environment. And the clients were tremendously flexible and appreciative and open to that reality, uh, which was very astonishing to me, uh, given how much more difficult their lives are at this moment than, than, than many others. Um, but in reflection, I mean, the reality is, is that everyone we, we serve is in crisis when we're serving them before all of this, right? We already didn't have enough resources to serve people. We already had so much need in the community. And these are people that are experiencing crisis prior to the pandemic. Of course, the pandemic's created situations that are, are indescribable in terms of the depth of, of, of grief that people have experienced, the trauma that people have experienced. But a lot of the people we serve are extremely resilient people. Um, and... I'll just say that, that I've just been extremely um, moved by the way that people have, have been able to manage that, uh, especially in the shelter program. That's amazing. Faith, what, what, what can you add? Yeah, uh, so all of our programs have built in where uh, residents or shelter uh, persons have voice about what activities are offered um when uh, we're, we're planning events or outings or setting rules that it's not top down it's uh it's more from the grassroots if you will up generally speaking um in terms of spiritual resources uh there are options made available it's never mandated i don't i don't believe you can mandate uh, faith of any kind uh but uh, so a bible study or a religious movie might be offered and it's announced. And if you go, you go. And if you don't go, you don't go. We have represented in our uh, population, our census, if you will, uh, folks who are Christian, folks who are Muslim, folks who are atheist, agnostic. So we, we try and honor where people are or aren't. Um, and that seems to work out fairly well. I thank you so much. Uh, there's a good question here and I it's twofold. And one of them is to is notes that the the stunning fact. I mean, for me, the realization of this uh, incredible pandemic has been it, re, it it opened my eyes 
to how, uh, how the social safety net in Metro Detroit is dependent upon organizations such as yours. And what, to what extent um, these social service organizations actually step in and provide the services people need. And so the question, and, and, and the question is this, what can we do to gather faith leaders to both support the nonprofit social safety net and modify for the long-term public sector commitment to this space that has been quote unquote outsourced? Well, one, one response I have to that is, is that even in the situations where public institutions are planning to respond, the pace is such that we have to figure out solutions well before, right? So in the shelter space, for example, um, before we knew that the CARES Act would include additional emergency solutions grant funds, before we knew we would be able to do with those funds, how they would be distributed, how they would be accessible. We had to start figuring out how to serve more people and do so in our model more expensively. Um, and then once we did hear that it was happening, it's, we still, you know, the funds flow through our county and through, through, through MISHTA, through the Michigan State Housing Development Authority. Um, we still don't have clarity uh, as to what that process is gonna look like. Um, and what we what resources we can expect to be reimbursed uh, for what we've laid out, um, and we've heard from the county that once we do hear that, it'll still probably be another sixty to ninety days before we can bill for it, right? So I say all that to say, um, we're we're the stopgap. I don't know that we're an adequate stopgap as a sector. I think in some activities we probably are are, are more uh, at capacity to respond than in others uh, in general to the, the social safety net. But I think that um, uh, in these kinds of situations, there's a part of me that uh, does have faith that eventually the public sector will catch up. But if we actually want to have meaningful impact, we need to have the cash flow to act when the emergency is happening. And that's something that you know we, we had a strong, at least at Lighthouse, we had a strong end of year in 2019 to put us into a place we felt confident that we could just act and do what needed to happen um, with some degree of faith that it wouldn't knock us out of the game and that, you know, that, that eventually the, system, the public systems would catch up. But a lot of organizations have not had that uh, luxury. Um, and we've seen organizations have to pull back resources. Um, so when you look at the collective pi uh, picture, um, you know, and, and to Faith's point earlier, there's been, you know, a million galas canceled. Um, you know, it's, our sector is taking a hit at the same time as we have to do more and more and more. And yes, eventually there may be resources that come back and help us recover uh, that were meant to be spent now. Um, so I would just say if there's, if there's a place to advocate, it would not necessarily, I don't necessarily expect public resources to move faster. I think it's, uh, figuring out how to support organizations, even if it's temporarily, to be able to respond in the moment when, when the needs present themselves so we can get there and survive to, to, to be able to do so. So I'd add to that, obviously finances is a big part of this uh, puzzle that we need to um, address during and after the pandemic. 
I think the other thing for faith communities is to start uh, really asking some of the justice questions. Some of the things that surprised people as we went through this about race and healthcare and education and transportation and employment, all those things. I mean, what, what the pandemic did is it gave us a microscope to look at some of those things that we, we tend to ignore. And yet, as, as most communities of faith have, um, have a justice mandate. And so I'd love to see that be a part of the um, some good things, some innovative things come out of terrible crisis situations. It's that moment now for us to be asking about those bigger questions that I believe the faith community not only can address, but must address. That is such a beautiful way of saying it, uh, Faith, because I do think um, these justice questions need to be uh, addressed. And, and I think that I think the fact that we haven't addressed them is to our shame. And, um, and one of the things that, and this anticipates other uh, questions that have come our way in terms of how do you dismantle the underlying themes and uh, systems of inequity and all of the things that we're talking about, we are moving towards the, um, towards the end of our time uh, but I, what I would like to say is that, you know, from my perspective, uh, what needs to happen is we need to see ourselves as whole people again. We need to see that the, that our lives are bound up in one another again. And, um, you know, when, when you look at other major historical events where many different groups of people are affected by things, a little bit like the, the, the Battle of Britain, for example, where everybody from every class and every walk of life had to shelter together uh, in subway uh, tubes and things like that, that out of that, um, that collected sacrifice came things like the, the British healthcare um, system. And so the, the, the hope that I have is that this will actually uh, develop uh, public, in a public policy way, um, some sense of ourselves as a whole people because uh, it, this pandemic seemed to hit us at the exact wrong time when we seem to be least understanding of one another, least involved in one another's lives, and in fact, not very curious about each other anymore. Um, and, um, and so I think this uh, gives us a chance to think about um, people that we tend not to think about um, and to involve ourselves in their lives. And the, the one thing that we are gonna do as a church um, is we're going to be working with a platform that um, Lighthouse has, uh, which is called Hand Up, which is a crowdsourcing platform. And what we hope to do is share this platform with uh, everyone uh, who wants to be in a faith community that wants to lift up individuals who have been uh, who have lost their lives to this this uh, pandemic. And, it, and by, by placing a picture of the person who is lost, by talking about their needs, talking about the, society, the group that they lived with, the, the family they had, the work that they did, and to, to mourn as well as meet their needs as best we can um, is one of the ways in which we might start to build that whole. 
because it's when we start to mourn for each other and when which when we start to see the faces of the people who have been lost when we see the bus driver for example who was you know someone coughed on him and four days later he he after posting something on social media he passes away from the disease um this kind of um, of sacrifice that he did to serve the the common good this kind of work he did to preserve his community and to, to serve his city um it's my hope that that kind of collective um mourning will actually bind us together as it has in the past um so i want to end tonight by asking you uh each to to identify one thing uh that gives you hope and we'll go as we came uh we'll start with kirk we'll go to palencia and then uh ryan faith and kelly Uh, my faith gives me hope. I just believe. I believe in good and I believe in people. Beautiful. The thing that gives me hope um, is that this pandemic has really shed a light on one simple thing. We're all human. And I'm very hopeful that we will begin to appreciate the beauty that we share in just simply being human beings and understand the need for equity um, in this country. Mm, beautiful. Um, I would say the thing that gives me hope right now is that um, since this tragedy uh, started, uh, nobody says no anymore when we ask for help. And uh, I can't keep up with the volume of people coming to us asking how they can help. And I've never experienced anything like that before. And I've been serving homeless people almost my whole career. Uh, and in that time, um, I, you know, I've, I, I've felt that I'm serving a stigmatized population who is extremely um, deprioritized by, by the general public. And for some reason right now, uh, I'm feeling the opposite, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's sustainable or anything like that, but it, it gives me hope about what's in people uh, and what the potential that people have. Mm. Very nice. I, uh, I've been very encouraged by the switch in our culture for what we respect in terms of employment, that all of a sudden it's an honorable uh, thing to be uh, a bus driver, a grocery store clerk, a postal carrier, a, a janitor, all, all of these essential jobs. Yes, doctors and nurses for sure, but these other occupations that, that are the glue of what allows us to live together, uh, very often they've been looked down upon um, and, and uh, we've gravitated towards sports heroes or Hollywood uh, celebrities. But more recently, I've seen a new level of respect for ordinary people doing extraordinary things, and that gives me a great deal of hope. Mm. Thank you. I think we have a running theme here because mine was mine is um, the human spirit, and it runs through all of us. And and while you said Ryan, you're not sure about the sustainability of it, and I tend to agree with you. I'm gonna I'm gonna ride that wave of hope. 
for as long as it's here because it's powerful right now. I am so I'm so grateful to you all and I'm so grateful for the hope that each of you has given me tonight and you know one of the things that I've I've discovered is is um, that when I getting to know each of you as I have um, you all are incredibly centered human beings who are constantly problem solving and you're probably that you're you are more entrepreneurial than anybody I've ever met. And uh, you get up every day. Oh, we didn't do you plenty. No, we did plenty. Sorry, I, you, you flashed in out. I got a little panic there. Um, <laughs> yes, um, you're always screwing with me. <laughs> the uh, you all uh, work so hard as as um, as 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 you are more entrepreneurial than most entrepreneurs, and you do it to serve uh, others and you've problem solved every day and you work so hard and you are you're the most grounded idealists and the most faithful people I know and uh, I want to say thank you um, for what you do and um, and God bless you and thanks for continuing to do that and you inspire me and you lift you know I when I need to, to think of uh, people to, to model myself off you know in addition to Jesus, I think of you. So thank you so much for your work. And that's our show tonight, folks. Thank you so much for being with us. So glad that you're with us. I'm sorry we didn't get to everybody's um, questions. Uh, oh, there were so many um, uh, more questions. I'll relate those to you, and um, I will. I will. Uh, uh, we'll find our way forward. Thanks, folks. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations at Christchurch Cranbrook. To learn more about our mission, worship services, and learning opportunities, please visit us at ChristchurchCranbrook.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Christchurch Cranbrook. We look forward to you joining us again, and may God bless you now and always.